Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from Wonder Book, Stories for Boys and Girls by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Gorgon's Head. Straight downward, two or three thousand feet below him, Perseus perceived a small island, with the sea breaking into white foam all around its rocky shore, except on one side, where there was a beach of snowy sand. He descended toward it, and looking earnestly at a clump or heap of brightness, at the foot of a precipice of black rocks, behold, there were the terrible gorgons. They lay fast asleep, soothed by the thunder of the sea, for it required a tumult that would have deafened everybody else to lull such fierce creatures into slumber. The moonlight glistened on their steely scales, and on their golden wings which drooped idly over the sand. Their brazen claws, horrible to look at, were thrust out, and clutched the wave-beaten fragments of rock, while the sleeping gorgons dreamed of tearing some poor mortal all to pieces. The snakes that served them instead of hair seemed likewise to be asleep, although now and then one would writhe and lift its head, and thrust out its forked tongue, emitting a drowsy hiss, and then letting itself subside among its sister snakes. The gorgons were more like an awful, gigantic kind of insect, immense golden-winged beetles, or dragonflies, or things of that sort, at once ugly and beautiful, than like anything else, only that they were a thousand and a million times as big. And with all this, there was something partly human about them, too. Luckily for Perseus, their faces were completely hidden from him by the posture at which they lay, for had he looked at one instant at them, he would have fallen heavily out of the air, an image of senseless stone. "'Now,' whispered Quicksilver, as he hovered by the side of Perseus, "'now is your time to do the deed. Be quick. Or, if one of the Gorgons should awake, you are too late.' "'Which shall I strike at?' asked Perseus, drawing his sword and descending a little lower. "'They all three look alike. All three have snaky locks. Which of the three is Medusa?' It must be understood that Medusa was the only one of these dragon monsters whose head Perseus could possibly cut off. As for the other two, let him have the sharpest sword that was ever forged, and he might have hacked away by the hour together, without doing them the least harm. "'Be cautious,' said the calm voice, which had before spoken to him. "'One of the Gorgons is stirring in her sleep, and is just about to turn over. That is Medusa. Do not look at her. The sight would turn you to stone.' Look at the reflection of her face and figure in the bright mirror of your shield. Perseus now understood Quicksilver's motive for so earnestly exhorting him to polish his shield. In its surface he could safely look at the reflection of the Gorgon's face. And there it was, that terrible countenance, mirrored in the brightness of the shield, with the moonlight falling over it and displaying all its horror. The snakes, whose venomous natures could not altogether sleep, kept twisting themselves over the forehead. It was the fiercest and most horrible face that ever was seen or imagined, and yet with a strange, fearful, and savage kind of beauty in it. The eyes were closed, and the gorgon was still in a deep slumber, but there was an unquiet expression disturbing her features, 
as if the monster was troubled with an ugly dream. She gnashed her white tusks and dug into the sand with her brazen claws. The snakes, too, seemed to feel Medusa's dream and to be made more restless by it. They twined themselves into tumultuous knots, writhed fiercely, and uplifted a hundred hissing heads without opening their eyes. "'Now, now!' whispered Quicksilver, who was growing impatient. "'Make a dash at the monster!' "'But be calm,' said the grave, melodious voice at the young man's side. "'Look in your shield as you fly downward, and take care you do not miss your first stroke.' Perseus flew cautiously downward, still keeping his eyes on Medusa's face as reflected in his shield. The nearer he came, the more terrible did the snaky visage and metallic body of the monster grow. At last, when he found himself hovering over her within arm's length, Perseus uplifted his sword, while at the same instant each separate snake upon the gorgon's head stretched threateningly upward, and Medusa unclosed her eyes. But she awoke too late. The sword was sharp, the strokes fell like a lightning flash, and the head of the wicked Medusa tumbled from her body. "'Admirably done!' cried Quicksilver. "'Make haste and clap the head into your magic wallet!' To the astonishment of Perseus, the small embroidered wallet, which he had hung about his neck, and which had hitherto been no bigger than a purse, grew all at once large enough to contain Medusa's head. As quick as thought, he snatched it up with the snake still writhing upon it, and thrust it in. "'Your task is done,' said the calm voice. "'Now fly, for the other Gorgons will do their utmost to take vengeance for Medusa's death.' It was indeed necessary to take flight, for Perseus had not done the deed so quietly, but that the clash of his sword, and the hissing of the snakes, and the thump of Medusa's head as it tumbled upon the sea-beaten sand, awoke the other two monsters. There they sat for an instant, sleepily rubbing their eyes with their brazen fingers, all while the snakes on their heads reared themselves on end with surprise, and with venomous malice against they knew not what. But when the Gorgons saw the scaly carcass of Medusa— headless, and her golden wings all ruffled and half spread out on the sand, it was really awful to hear what yells and screeches they set up. And then the snakes, they sent forth a hundredfold hiss with one consent, and Medusa's snakes answered them out of the magic wallet. No sooner than were the gorgons broad awake, than they hurled upward into the air, brandishing their brass talons, gnashing their horrible tusks, and flapping their huge wings so wildly that some of the golden feathers were shaken out and floated down upon the shore. And there, perhaps, those very feathers lie scattered till this day. Up rose the gorgons, as I tell you, staring horribly about, in hopes of turning somebody to stone. Had Perseus looked them in the face, or had he fallen into their clutches, his poor mother would have never kissed her boy again. But he took good care to turn his eyes another way, and, as he wore the helmet of invisibility, the Gorgons knew not in what direction to follow him, nor did he fail to make the best use of the winged slippers, by soaring upward a perpendicular mile or so. At that height, when the screams of those abominable creatures sounded faintly beneath him, he made a straight course for the island of Seraphis, in order to carry Medusa's head to King Polydectes. I have no time to tell you of several marvelous things that befell Perseus on his way homeward, such as his killing a hideous sea monster, just as it was on the point of devouring a beautiful maiden, nor how he changed an enormous giant into a mountain of stone, merely by showing him the head of the Gorgon. If you doubt this latter story, you may make a voyage to Africa some day or other and see the very mountain, which is still known by the ancient giant's name. 
Finally, our brave Perseus arrived at the island where he expected to see his dear mother. But, during his absence, the wicked king had treated Danae so very ill that she was compelled to make her escape, and had taken refuge in a temple, where some good old priests were extremely kind to her. These praiseworthy priests and the kind-hearted fishermen, who had first shown hospitality to Danae and little Perseus when he found them afloat in the chest, seemed to have been the only persons on the island who cared about doing right. All the rest of the people, as well as King Polydectes himself, were remarkably ill-behaved, and deserved no better destiny than what was now to happen. Not finding his mother at home, Perseus went straight to the palace, and was immediately ushered into the presence of the king. Polydectes was by no means rejoiced to see him, for he had felt almost certain in his own evil mind that the Gorgons would have torn the young man to pieces, and have eaten him up out of the way. However, seeing him safely returned, he put the best face he could upon the matter, and asked Perseus how he had succeeded. "'Have you performed your promise?' inquired he. "'Have you brought me the head of Medusa with the snaky locks? "'If not, young man, it will cost you dear, "'for I must have a bridal present for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia, "'and there is nothing else she would admire so much.' "'Yes, please, your majesty,' answered Perseus in a quiet way, "'as if it were no very wonderful deed for such a young man as he to perform. "'I have brought you the Gorgon's head, snaky locks, and all.' Indeed, pray let me see it, quoth King Polydectes. It must be a very curious spectacle, if all that travellers tell about it are true. Your Majesty is in the right, replied Perseus. It is really an object that will be pretty certain to fix all the regards of those who look at it. And, if your Majesty think fit, I would suggest a holiday be proclaimed, and that all your Majesty's subjects be summoned to behold this wonderful curiosity. Few of them, I imagine, have seen a gorgon's head before, and perhaps never may again. The king well knew that his subjects were an idle set of reprobates, and very fond of sightseeing, as idle people usually are. So he took the young man's advice, and sent out heralds and messengers in all directions to blow the trumpet at the street corners, and in the marketplaces, and wherever two roads met, and summon everybody to court." Thither, accordingly, came a great multitude of good-for-nothing vagabonds, all of whom, out of pure love of mischief, would have been glad if Perseus had met with some ill-hap in his encounter with the Gorgons. If there were any better people in the island, as I really hope there may have been, although the story tells nothing about any such, they stayed quietly at home, minding their business and taking care of their little children. Most of the inhabitants, at all events, ran as fast as they could to the palace, and shoved and pushed and elbowed one another in their eagerness to get near a balcony, on which Perseus showed himself, holding the embroidered wallet in his hand. On a platform, within full view of the balcony, sat the mighty King Polydectes, amid his evil counsellors, and with his flattering courtiers in a semicircle around him. Monarch, counsellors, courtiers, and subjects all gazed eagerly toward Perseus. "'Show us the head! Show us the head!' shouted the people. And there was a fierceness in their cry, as if they would tear Perseus to pieces unless he should satisfy them with what he had to show. "'Show us the head of Medusa with the snaky locks!' A feeling of sorrow and pity came over the youthful Perseus. "'O oh, King Polydectes!' cried he. "'and ye many people, I am very loath to show you the Gorgon's head.' 
Ah, the villain and coward, yelled the people, more fiercely than before. He is making game of us. He has no Gorgon's head. Show us the head if you have it, or we will take your own head for a football. The evil counselors whispered bad advice in the king's ear. The courtiers murmured, with one consent that Perseus had shown disrespect to their royal lord and master, and the great king Polydectes himself waved his hand and ordered him, with the stern, deep voice of authority, on his peril to produce the head. "'Show me the Gorgon's head, or I will cut off your own.' And Perseus sighed. "'This instant,' repeated Polydectes, "'or you die.' "'Behold it, then,' cried Perseus, in a voice like the blast of a trumpet. And suddenly, holding up the head, not an eyelid had time to wink before the wicked Polydectes, his evil counsellors, and all his fierce subjects were no longer anything but the mere images of a monarch and his people. They were all fixed, forever, in the look and attitude of that moment. At the first glimpse of the terrible head of Medusa, they whitened into marble.' and Perseus thrust the head back into his wallet, and went to tell his dear mother that she need no longer be afraid of the wicked King Polydectes. "'Was that a not a very fine story?' asked Eustace. "'Oh, yes, yes,' cried Cowslip, clapping her hands. "'And those funny old women with only one eye amongst them? I never heard of anything so strange.' "'As to their one tooth, which they shifted about,' observed Primrose." There was nothing so very wonderful in that. I suppose it was a false tooth. But think you're turning Mercury into Quicksilver and talking about his sister. You are too ridiculous. And was she not his sister? asked Useless Sprite. If I had thought of it sooner, I would have described her as a maiden lady who kept a pet owl. Well, at any rate, said Primrose, your story seems to have driven away the mist. And in so, indeed, while the tale was going forward, the vapours had quite exhaled from the landscape. A scene was now disclosed which the spectators might almost fancy as having been created since they last looked in the direction where it lay. About a half-mile distant, in the lap of the valley, now appeared a beautiful lake, which reflected a perfect image of its own wooded banks, and of the summits of the more distant hills. It gleamed in glassy tranquillity, without the trace of a winged breeze on any part of its bosom. Beyond its farther shore was Monument Mountain, in a recumbent position, stretching almost across the valley. Eustace Bright compared it to a huge, headless sphinx, wrapped in a Persian shawl, and indeed so rich and diversified was the autumnal foliage of its woods, that the simile of the shawl was by no means too high-colored for the reality— in the lower ground, between Tanglewood and the lake, the clumps of trees and borders of woodlands were chiefly golden-leaved or dusky brown, as having suffered more from frost than the foliage on the hillsides. Over all this scene there was a genial sunshine intermingled with a slight haze, which made it unspeakably soft and tender. Oh, what a day of Indian summer was it going to be! The children snatched their baskets and set forth, with hop-skip and jump, and all sorts of frisks and gambles, while Cousin Eustace proved his fitness to preside over the party, by outdoing all their antics, and performing several new capers, which none of them could ever hope to imitate. Behind went a good old dog, whose name was Ben. He was one of the most respectable and kind-hearted of quadrupeds, and probably felt its duty not to trust the children away from their parents, without some better guardian than this feather-brained Eustace Bright. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchantedlibrary. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.